0: The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. We'll take your Bibles again, the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. We're going to read this morning from Ephesians 1 and verse 15 all the way down to 2 and verse 10. This is the word of God and it says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no man, no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, this morning, we ask you again in the words of the psalmist that you would strengthen us according to your word, that you would revive us according to your word. Father, you would teach us the word of God. Father, we pray that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory this morning as we would consider these passages together. We ask you, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. I love to read the stories of the old men and women of God who lived exemplary lives of faith and godliness. I love reading Martin Lloyd-Jones and Spurgeon and George Mueller, uh, George Whitfield, D.L. Moody, some of those, uh, C.S. Lewis, all those kind of great ones. And reading a balanced, carefully researched biography can be greatly encouraging to our Christian faith. But there's also an inherent danger rooted in there. If the biographer isn't careful how he writes or how she writes, the lives of their subjects can sometimes be presented as much larger than life characters. They're never failing. They're never weak in their faith. They're always behaving in flawless Christian character, accomplishing great things for God, dying dramatic and glorious deaths. I remember reading one particular biography. I don't even remember the name of the subject. But as the writer described his death, I had to actually close the book and just put it back on my shelf because he was elevating this man to something far beyond what he truly was, a man, and making him more than that. I think we've all met Christians who live such godly lives, real godly men and women. They're impressive not because of their personal charisma or their achievements or the number of books they're written or the number of letters after their name, but their very demeanor is of a quiet, simple, deep faith in God. There are, by the way, men and women in this church just like that. I've had the privilege of walking with and knowing a few men like that in my life. Uh, One man, if you hang around with me long enough, you'll hear his name is Uncle Jack. He was the dear godly man who took me aside as a young man and began to teach me how to study the Bible, but he did far more than just teach me exegesis and commentaries and dictionaries. He imparted to me as we sat over his desk with Bibles open and books open, he taught me how to love the Lord and how to love His Word. He was the most unobtrusive. He's the kind of guy that... Nobody in the room really notices too much. But he is a wonderful, godly man. Flaws and failings like the rest of us. We've all met men and women like that. Their conduct is exemplary. They never color outside the lines of integrity. They never fudge on anything. They live lives that are in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a joy in their demeanor. There's a steadfastness in their walk of faith. And then you look at yourselves in our own lives, and we seem to fall so far short of God's calling on us. We lose our patience with loved ones. We receive bad news, and immediately we begin to doubt God's goodness. We're provoked, and we recoil with a frightening fury. Another believer involves themselves in some kind of gross sin, and we are shocked that they who once preached the gospel and saw God work mightily now care little, if anything, for the things of God. And it just staggers and stumbles us. Maybe we find ourselves falling repeatedly into the same sins and struggles and difficulties again and again and again and again. Why do some of us fail so often to live and walk in victory while other Christians seem to live such exemplary godly lives? They're not living it just on Sunday. You get alongside of them, and you walk with them, and you see them. Maybe you work alongside them, and you realize it's the same all the way through. Everywhere they are, they're the same godly man or woman. Why is that? Well, first of all, I think we have to remind ourselves that everybody fails from time to time. But some of us seem to fail less than others. They seem to live godly lives with a certain power, a certain ability, Well, in our passage, Paul is recounting his prayers for them. His motive to pray is hearing of their faith in Christ and love for the saints. His manner of praying is unceasing thanksgiving and prayer. The content of his prayer. Listen, he prays that God will give them the increased influence of the Holy Spirit, resulting in spiritual wisdom and revelation. That wisdom and revelation comes as we walk with Christ. Paul also prays that the eyes of their heart, being enlightened, they will know three things. They'll know the hope of his calling. We saw that last week. They'll know the riches of his inheritance. We looked at his inheritance a few weeks back when we looked at verse 14. So we're not going to look at that today. We also to praise that they will know uh, the surpassing greatness of his power at work towards us who believe. And Paul prays these things because they are necessary for us, just as for the Ephesians, for all of us to live as new creatures in Christ. That is the overall theme of Paul's letter. It's the new creature in Christ. It's the new community of believers together in Christ. It's a new way to live. It's a new emphasis in living life as new creatures in a new community. And Paul prays for them this because he knows that these things are necessary if we are going to live that life. This morning I want to ask and answer three questions for us to help us understand why we should pray for each other to know God's power as Paul prayed for them. Why do we need God's power working toward us? Number one. Number two, what is God's power toward us? And number three, how can we know Really know his power at work toward us. So first of all, why do we need to know God's power toward us? And the reality and the answer is this. We need God's power in order to live this Christian life. From the moment we heard the gospel call in the past to the moment we are... we inherit that inheritance that's for us in the future. In other words, from the moment we trust Christ all the way to the end of this journey in the Christian life, we need the power of God to live this life. We need the power of God working toward us to live godly lives. What does this new creation life require of us that demands this power in order to live? Listen, Christianity is not just another option on the block of religions that you can pick from. Every other religion will offer you something that you must do and you'll have to work to in your strength to accomplish it. But the Lord Jesus Christ has called us out of this world to follow him and he has given us his power to live this life the way that he has called us to. I think the problem for many of us is we don't really understand what God has called us to when he called us to live this Christian life. What does this new life require? Well, We're going to look at just a few things, seven of them from the book of Ephesians. We're not going to unpack them. We're just going to skip across the top. And I want to overload you. Yeah, you heard me right. I want to overload you with how much we're called to live so that when you realize there's so much to this life, there is no possible way that we can live it without the power of God at work toward us. So take your Bibles, flip over maybe a page to Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 3. And the word of God says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have been called to live a holy lifestyle. It was a holy calling we've been received, and that's the manner we're to live and walk in. Now, I don't know about you, but living a life of holiness in my own power is absolutely impossible. I actually thought about titling the message, Mission Impossible, Made Possible, because to live this Christian life in our own strength is impossible. And the reason why we struggle so much is we fail to realize that we're not required to live it in our own strength. He's going to give us the power we need. He does. He's already giving it to us. He's working it toward us. We're called to be holy. Ephesians 4 verse 17 talks about how we're not to walk and live like the unbelievers. It is a tragedy It's a terrible testimony. It's a disgrace for the Christian that lives and looks and sounds just like the world in which we live. We have been called out of this world to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and look like and sound like him, not the world around us. Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, the Bible says this, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new self, which is, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We as new creatures in Christ, we're to be changed. We're to put off the old man and we're to put on the new man. I almost call it the self-exchange program. I put off my old self, I put on the new self. How are we going to do that? By ourselves, in our own strength, in our own ability? No, it's impossible. It requires the power of God to change like that. We need that power desperately. We're to put off the old man and put on the new. Ephesians 5 and verse 1, the Bible says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are to be godly. What does that mean? We're to be looking like the father. In a sense, it's like this. We're to bear the family image. We're to look like our father looks like. We look like our parents look. My kids, my, my three boys, they walk around and nobody has to look very long to figure out who their dad is. They all look like me. Poor guys, feel sorry for them. Really, they inherited that. We look like, it's not hard to take people in this church and go, you know, I think I know who your dad is because you kind of look just like him. And when people see us living this Christian life, they ought about to look at us and say, hey, you look just like your father. You look just like your savior. What did the chief priests and the the Sadducees, all those guys that gathered the disciples in, after Pentecost, and they looked at them, and they realized that these men had been with Jesus. They had Not because they looked like him physically, they all looked similar, Middle Eastern men, in the same kind of garb and so on, but they looked at them and they saw in their eyes, in their countenance, in the way they carried themselves, the way they responded to the questions they were being asked, and they said, those men have been with Jesus Christ. We're to be godly to look like our Father in heaven. i love us to stop and unpack some of these for half an hour, but we'd never get out of here, so I'll just keep going. Ephesians 5 and verse 2, look what he says, And to walk in love, just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Listen, men and women, we have been called as a part of this new creation life to walk in love. The difficult love, the love when they're kicking you in the shins, the love when they're throwing things at you, rocks and stones, and even bullets. The love that goes beyond, the love when people do not love you in return. I think it was the Lord Jesus who said in Matthew 5, If you love those that love you, what reward have you? Even the Pharisees, and hypocrites do that. It's loving those that don't love us. It's loving those who don't want, don't like us and don't want to be around us. We're to walk and live in love. It's an agape love. What it means to sacrifice for the sake of the benefit of the other. It's not moments of love, by the way. It's a lifestyle. It's an ongoing life of love that we're to live. I keep saying it. I'll say it again. What did Jesus say about that? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for the other. And I'll tell you right now, I cannot do that on my own. If it was not for the love of God, I could not hang around with some Christians. It's difficult. I'm not going to hide it. Living this Christian life is not an easy life. It's a difficult life. In fact, it's an impossible life to live. But the beautiful thing is that God in his grace has given us everything we need in order to live that life. He has given us the power of the living God to live this life and walk by faith and live and love each other even when we're not loved in return. We're called in Ephesians 5 and verse 8 to be lights. We're commanded to walk and live as children of light. We're allowed to light that's in us, that's the truth of God, to shine out wherever we are. The truth of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, lived and mediated through the lives of men and women to shine the gospel message wherever we go. The light of God's truth allows men to see... The devil deeds they do in darkness, the light of God's truth allows men to see the way in which they should go to point them towards Christ. The light of the gospel points men and women to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And we're to be those lights shining into the community. You live in a unique situation. Your particular age, vocation, location, all of that, and your circle of friends is different than everybody else around you. Even your sisters and your parents and your brothers and your uncles, whatever. You're put in a very unique position to shine the light of the gospel wherever you go. I'll tell you, we cannot do it on our own. We need the power of the living God in order to do it. Number six, as new creatures in Christ, we're to be wise. We're called and commanded by the almighty God in Ephesians 5 and verse 15, to walk and live as wise men and women. Wise, not by the standards of this world. Wise, not by street smarts, but wise by the standards of scripture. How does he describe it? making the most of our time, understanding what the will of God is, being filled with the Holy Spirit. All of these require the power of the living God in us to live that way. You might think you're pretty wise. You maybe are. I'll tell you from me, I look in the mirror and I think, wise? Good luck, brother. Not much wisdom happening there. I need the power of God in order to live that life wisely, making the most of my time, understanding what the will of the Lord is, and so on. It requires it. We're called in verse 19 to live lives of holy joy, speaking in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And there's so many other things that we could unpack from the passage and from the book and from the whole New Testament about how we are to live as believers And I'm trying to overload you with it because I want you to get the sense that you can't do it because you can't. And the reason why Paul starts his letter by praying those things is because he knows what he's going to open up and command them to do later in the letter. And he knows if he puts all those commands on them first without first praying for them, that they will know the power of God toward them. They will not be able to keep those things and it'll end in frustration and despair. That's not what God wants for us. He wants us to walk in obedience. He wants us to walk in faith and in love, following the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our hearts. All of those things. Holy joy, wisdom, love, power, all those things, they're all connected to the gospel call. Many of us have responded to the call of God to come out of this world, trusting in the living God, repenting of sin, and living by faith in the Lord Jesus. They're all presented, by the way, not as a buffet, which we can pick and choose a little bit of this and a little bit of that and forget the rest. All spelled out for us in the way we are to live as believers, as new creatures in Christ. I want us to realize that the Christian life as new creatures in Christ is mission impossible on our own. In our own strength, we cannot live the life that God calls us to. We need the power of God to live the life of the new creation in Christ. We need And remember and rejoice, Christian, because God in infinite grace has given us every single thing that we need. You lack nothing. What did Paul say to the Corinthians in Corinthians 1? I think your Bible's flip over there for a second. 1 Corinthians 1, he says... There it is, verses four to verse seven. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything not something, in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he saying? I give thanks to God for the grace of God that's given you everything you need, excuse me, to live this life. He saved us by His grace. He filled us with His Holy Spirit. He gave us His written word, the Scriptures. He gave us a calling to give us hope. He gave us an inheritance to look forward to. And He is also working His power toward us so that we have all we need to live this Christian life. The reason why, brothers and sisters, why some of us seem to live with more success... Is because they live it according to the power of God already working toward them. They understand it, and they live it. So the question then is, what is the surpassing greatness of his power? What is this power of God? I wrestled with this for most of the week, trying to chew my head around, saying, what does this mean? When he says the power of God, what's he talking about? The power of God, listen, this is important. The power of God is God's ability to accomplish whatsoever he desires. So anything God purposes, he has the ability, the power to do it. If God desires you to live a godly life, he has the ability to make you and enable you to live a godly life. Mark 10 verse 27 says this, with men it is impossible, speaking of salvation, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Anything that God desires to do, He has the power, the ability to do it. Isaiah 46 verse 10 says this, Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Everything God desires to do, he has the power and the ability to accomplish it. The power of God is his dynamis, his ability. We get the word dynamite from it. It doesn't mean explosive power. In this case, it means um, it's a force. It's an ability. It's just, I'm trying to find other words to get, unpack it. But don't get the idea of explosive. It's more like an overwhelming force. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 and 2, I think you would remember the verse if you went to Sunday school, but I'll read it anyway. Romans 8, 1 and 2, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The word law there doesn't mean like a legal code. What it means is the overwhelming, unstoppable, force or ability of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law, the force, the power of the sin and death. That's the power of God at work. But the power of God is only limited by his character. Okay, so God cannot deny himself. He cannot exercise his power in a way that would deny himself. God cannot tolerate evil. Therefore, God cannot exercise that power toward us in such a way that he would create or tolerate evil. God cannot be tempted, so he can't use that power in a way to tempt himself. And so on, right? So his power, his ability is governed and limited by his own character. Most of all, I just had this Yahoo moment. I think it was on... Friday afternoon or Saturday morning when I kind of got my head around this. Listen, God's power is limited by his character of love. God's character of love governs and limits the exercise of His power. God's power is the exercise of His love to accomplish His will. And He is working it towards every single man, woman, and child that trusts in Jesus Christ as their Savior. God in love desires, plans, and purposes to finish the salvation work that He began in you and He began in me. Okay, so he began it in us and his powers at work toward us to accomplish that. Listen to this. I like John Piper. Some of you have already picked that up, and I like a few other great preachers out there. And there's one sermon that he preached, and I heard it back in Canada probably 10 years ago, and I've never forgotten it. It happens to be on this passage. I only remember this one punchy little statement he made. This is not a word-for-word word quote, just what I remember. He says, listen, you and I do not make it one single second in this Christian life without the power of God working toward us. We need it every single second of the day and night. And he is working that power toward us. You think you make it on your own? You're dreaming. We don't. But the beautiful thing is that God has given us the power and he has poured that power out toward us that we might live this Christian life in success. The only way we make it to follow Christ all the way from the moment of conversion all the way until we are taken up to be with him or he returns in glory is his power which is at work toward us and that power is motivated and driven by the love of God and God loves you. He loves me. He loves all of us, and his desire is to see us finish the race in success, to finish and run the race well. What type of power is it? In verse 19, it's an exceedingly great power. It's an immense power, not small or underpowered. Exceedingly is like a superlative word of comparison. Not smaller, not little, it's greater God's power working toward us is greater than any other power the greatest power that we know and we can see today is weather literally I was watching uh, years ago what how long ago was now is when did the tsunami happen in Southeast Asia 10 years ago yeah about 10 years ago give or take was it 2006 there we go I came across this YouTube thing, it was about 40 minutes long, and what it was is somebody had gone around and picked up all these phone camera videos of people re- filming from high places watching the tsunami come in. And some of them had a uh, voice uh, in the background, people were talking as they're, and watching, and a lot of it was in language I didn't understand, and occasionally had with subtitles, but every once in a while you'd see a burst of English would come through in one of these film clips. And you, I sat there in my chair just watching this and just stunned by the power of wave. As this massive wave came in and just kept coming in and it was unceasing, unstopping, it kept flowing in harder and it was knocking out cars and small buildings and bigger buildings and, and whole parts of the town were crumbling and collapsing and people were running and fleeing trying to get away from this wave. As I sat and watched, you just got this horror on your mind. You realize people are dying by the thousands and these clips as they're filming them from high places. I'll never forget, halfway through, one man came on and, and he was talking as he was filming. And I quote his words, I don't mean any disrespect. He said, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, it's the end, it's the end, it's the end, oh God. And he kept saying it over and you could just, you could sense the absolute horror. He didn't think he'd make it out alive. Somehow either his phone did or he did. That's the power of Weather. And the power of weather is nothing to our God. Jesus comes walking out across the wind and the waves of a storm on Galilee. He's out for a leisurely evening stroll as he walks across the waves and speaks to his disciples. Another scene, Jesus is in a boat and the waves are rocking the boat. They're coming over the edge. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and one of these great storms that whips up in that sea. And they wake him, teacher, teacher. Don't you care? We're perishing. And he gets up and he rubs the sleep out of his eyes and he says, Hush, be still. And in a moment, the Bible says it was perfectly calm. And I got this view of my mind of this edge of the boat and these disciples just kind of looking over the edge. In one moment, the waves are crashing across the boat. They're fearful of their lives, experienced fishermen. In the very next moment, as they're peering over the edge of the boat into the water, they can see their reflection nearly perfectly in the absolute calm. That's the power of God at work. It's his ability to accomplish whatsoever he desires. And that power, Christian, is at work towards you and towards me, that we might finish this race, that we might live this life, a godly life. Notice also who are the objects, the recipients of this power. He says in verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. His power is to working towards us who have faith in Christ, who have repented of sin, who have following in obedience to the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from it, we will not know that power. Which leads to a second problem that we could raise up. One of the reasons so many men and women are fighting to live this life without success is because they have never truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and never truly been saved. And they're trying to keep all the rules and, keep, and do it all. And they don't have the power of God working towards them. And if I could just do a sidestep for my message for just a second, my plea with you this morning, I don't care how long you've been in this church, I don't care how long you've been going to church. Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians 13 to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith or not. Take a long, hard look at your life, not in the mirror of the people around you, but in the mirror of God's word. It's a biblical call. He says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says in first, Second Corinthians 13, examine your faith. Take a long look. What an absolute tragedy if you rock up on the day when the Lord Jesus is there and we say, Lord, Lord, I preached hundreds of sermons for you, Lord. Lord, you know, I went on the mission field. I went on mission trips every year. You know, I did pilgrimages. I did this. I did that. I did the other thing. And the Lord turns around and says, depart. I never knew you. And I know that's a heavy to drop on you. But I would rather drop it on you and have some of you angry at me for saying that than have you go merrily on your way all the way down to the end of this life and stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and have him here to hear those words. Brother and sister in Christ, if you struggle with this Christian faith, there is good biblical grounds to stop, to examine your life, to see whether or not you are truly born again, whether you truly know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. It is not my job, my calling, or my choice to merrily sing a sweet sermon song every Sunday morning and merrily send you on your way to hell thinking you know God when you don't. It is a power, an exceedingly great power. And the recipients of God's power of those who believe, those who have fully trusted in Christ, are calling out to him for forgiveness, a pleading with him for more faith and more strength and more ability, and are taking it every step of the way in the power that he provides Notice that God's power is working towards every believer. I love the fact that Paul puts us in there. You know why he puts us in there? Because he knows that the power of God is working towards him as an apostle. And that gives me great courage. It isn't just the weak believers that need the power of God. It isn't just the mature believers or the young believers or the old believers or the men or the women or the children. It's every single believer who ever trusts Christ needs that power of God working towards him that they might follow Christ. That power is available to the rich, the poor, the young, the old, the wise, the simple, the dumb, the dumber, and the dumberer. Praise God, I'm in. (laughs) You know? There's no exclusion. It's just those who trust in Christ. That power is working towards them. Notice also the limitation of God's power. It says in verse 19, He's working according to His mighty strength. In proportion to the strength of God's might, that power is at work. It means in consequence to. So when he says in verse 19, um, that the, sorry, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, these are in accordance or as a result of the working of the strength of his might. And Paul uses an old rabbinic, Uh, Tool, literary tool to pile up and heap up all these phrases and superlatives to say, this is the power. It's an unbelievable power. One commentator said you could literally say, what is the powerful, powerfulness of his power, which is working in the power of his power. You just pile all these words up to get the idea that it's an absolutely omnipotent power of the living God. And it's his ability to accomplish whatsoever he desires. Notice some of the examples. We're going to just go through these. Good. The example of God's power working toward us. Okay, notice, first of all, in creation. You go to the book of Job, 26 and verse 13. Psalm 104, verse 30. Go to Genesis 1, 1. And you see God in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. What did he create it out of? What were the raw materials? Nothing. What did he do it with? His voice. Let there be light. And there was light. Let there be the earth. There was the earth. Let there be the universe. There was the universe. Let there be the stars. There they were. He created by the power. The Bible uses, or sorry, theologians use a phrase called ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. He just spoke it into existence. That's the power of God displayed. Every single thing that your eye can see, your hands can touch, you can taste or smell, it's all as a result of the creative power of God. God displayed His power in the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Luke 1.35 that the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you and you will have be conceived and have a child. God desired. Remember I said about love motivating? Okay, Love Desired to rescue a lost and fallen world. And the power of God was motivated and governed by his love. And his power overshadowed Mary. And in some supernatural way, she conceived and gave birth to a son. Who was one person with two natures and three offices. Fully God. Fully man. Prophet, priest, and king. All those things in one person. And how did that happen? power of the living God overshadowed her. Notice also in verse 20, it says that God raised Christ from the dead. That was the power he brought about. Look at the whole verse. This power he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, the heavenly places. God's power raised Christ from the dead. What's that mean for us? What power does death have over us as Christians? Right answer, none. Yeah, my body might die and go into the ground, but that's not the end for me. His power over death was displayed mightily as he raised Christ from the dead. Even as Jesus stood outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. As someone said very uh, cheekily, it's a good thing he said Lazarus or the whole grave would have just emptied out. Everybody would have come rocking out of the grave. His power was displayed as he was raised from the dead. His power was displayed as he was established over the earthly governments. He was seated at his right hand. What's that mean for us? God's power is greater than all the governments of this world put together and multiplied by a billion. It's nothing compared to God's power. And Paul is praying for them and saying, "Listen, I want you to know the power of God that's at work toward you. It's power that raised Christ from the dead. It's power that seated him at the right hand of the majesty it's high. It's power also that made dead people live us. Notice in verse 2. Sorry. Chapter 2 verse 1, it begins with an end. I don't think Paul put a chapter break in there. Someone else did. He's saying, listen, he raised Christ from the dead. He seated him on his right hand. He did these things. And you who were dead in sins and so on, he has made alive. That power of God was displayed when you were saved. Think about that. The moment that your heart yearned to be Christ's, the moment that your heart longed to be saved truly, that was the power of God at work. To awaken you, to regenerate you, to give you the faith to believe, to turn and respond to the gospel. It's also His power to establish us and raise us up with Christ. And we can go on forever unpacking all these displays. I'll come back to it in a few weeks. God's power working toward us is an immense power. Lastly, how can we know His power to live godly lives? Well, first of all, we've got to realize that the power of God at work toward us is associated with the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And you've got to put a big pause here. Too many people have made an equation out of power and the Holy Spirit. In other words, the power of God is the Holy Spirit. That's not true. The power of God is present with the Holy Spirit. The power of God is mediated through the Holy Spirit. The power of God is also present in Christ and present in God Himself. But we sometimes make a mistake and say, well, the power of God is the Holy Spirit. And you make the person of the Holy Spirit, you reduce him to an impersonal force. And that's wrong. It's not biblical. But the power of God is present where the Holy Spirit is. Notice in creation... God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God was present in creation. The Spirit of God's present when we were regenerated. That's the work of the Spirit of God in us. But the power of God is mediated to us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this, Luke 24, 49. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, you can make that equation and say, well, he's talking about the Spirit of God there. He's talking about being clothed with power when the Spirit of God comes. Don't make the equation. Don't make a mistake there. Acts 1.8 says this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So they come together in that sense. And you should be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Listen, this power to live this life is mediated through the presence of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. I think I said it a few weeks ago. I think I'll say it again. It bothers me so much that for some reason in conservative evangelical circles, we have made a conclusion that the Spirit of God belongs to the charismatics and the Word of God belongs to the conservative evangelicals. That is not biblical. It's not true. He is the Spirit of God in us. And we are so many of us trying to live this life through effort and willpower. Failing to realize that the power of the Spirit of God is on us and in us and working toward us to get us to live through this life, to finish it in success. So how do we know this power? Number one, we pray that we will know it. That's Paul's example. I pray. Praying unceasingly in verse number uh, 16 there, 17. I pray, verse 18, that the eyes of your heart being enlightened, that you will know. So we pray for one another. We pray with all petition and all prayer for each other that each of us will truly know this power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. We pray for the increased enlightening of the Spirit of God. As we soak and absorb the Word of God into our lives, we pray that the Spirit of God will illuminate, illuminate it to us so that we'll understand it. So we'll live in light of what it teaches. Secondly, we must seek the increased influence of the Spirit of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I'm going to cover it again very briefly. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It literally means that filling idea means to receive the increased influence. Okay, Remember, you were sealed once at the moment of conversion. There's no biblical warrant for multiple baptisms of the Holy Spirit. But there is biblical warrant to believe... In and seek for the increased influence of the Holy Spirit throughout life. Uh, Paul Washer often talks about praying for greater and greater manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. I'm not talking about tongues and all those kind of crazy things. What I'm talking about is the power of the Spirit of God at work in us so that we can live this life the way He's called us to. It's the only way we can live it. Paul tells us in one verse thirteen that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In five eighteen of Ephesians, to be filled, being filled with the Holy Spirit is an answer to prayer. Okay, Jesus told us in Luke eleven thirteen that the Father would give us the Holy Spirit to those that asked Him. He's not talking about two baptism. He's talking about the increased influence. I wrestled the two three weeks ago with an illustration that would describe this and show it to you. So I'm going to tell you again, it's like a fire. Get a bunch of wood, light a fire, fire burns, nice and hot, a bit of light coming off it. You lean down and whoosh, blow on the fire. What happens? The fire all of a sudden burns hotter and brighter. The light is increased and the heat is increased. The influence of the fire all of a sudden got bigger. Why? The fire is the same fire. It's the same wood. It's Everything's the same. It's just that that influence grew. And we ought to, like Paul, pray for the increased influence of the Spirit of God in our lives so that we can live this life. Fourthly, or thirdly, sorry, we must not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? We grieve the Spirit of God by allowing sin to remain. We hinder his influence by allowing sin to remain unrooted out of our lives. We know a certain activity, a habit, or action we've done in the past is sin. We refuse to stop doing it. That will hinder, excuse me, hinder greatly the power of the Holy Spirit in your life working towards you. We refuse to confess that sin and seek forgiveness. We grieve the Spirit of God by refusing to obey Him. Some of us read the Word of God, and we see in the Word of God what it calls me to do, and we put back, and we dig in our heels, and we back up. No, 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 that's too much. Can't do that. Not going to go there. No way. You know, Lord, I'll follow you all the way, but not that. Doesn't work that way when we refuse to follow and obey Christ and do exactly as He's called us to do, we are hindering the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Brothers and sisters in Christ, here let me ask you a question. Is it possible you're struggling to live this life in the power of the Spirit of God because there is sin that is unconfessed and undealt with in your life that is hindering the influence of the Spirit of God on you? I plead with you from my own personal experience of knowing how relentless the convicting, provoking power of the Spirit of God truly is, I plead with you to put it right. Deal with whatever it is. Phone up whoever you've got to phone up and put it right. If there's somebody in this church, a broken relationship, a torn, fractured relationship, I plead with you, go and put it right. We were talking last night around the home about repentance and restoration and restitution, putting things right, going back, dealing with sin. Oh, it's okay. The the grace of God will cover it. No, Paul said, what shall we say then? Shall we sin that grace may abound? May it never be. The strongest negative term you can use in Greek. No, we deal with those things. The reasons why I think we're not seeing revival in our churches, we're praying for revival, is because we're allowing sin in our lives to stay and we're not dealing with it. We want to see the power of God working in this church. That's one thing right away we need to attend to. Sin and disobedience in hinders the influence of the Spirit of God. The last thing, number four, we must think. You hear me right, we must think with our brains. Far too often, brothers and sisters, we don't give thought to what God has done in our lives. Remember I said, I've said it three weeks in a row now, someone reminded me at home the other day. This knowledge he's talking about here, there's there's different kinds of knowledge in the Bible. Number, Number one knowledge is just information. I read, I get information. I can read the back of a book and get some information. Then there's information and experience. I can learn how to build something in my cabinet shop. Then I go out there and actually get the wood and start planing and hammering and actually have the experience of doing what those instructions tell me to do. That's an experiential and informational knowledge. This know here, when he says, I pray that you may know, involves a third element. It's the idea of deep consideration and thinking. So how does that work? Well, basically, we look back and we say, what's happened in my life in the last two, three years? Where's the power of God at work in my life? And we look back and all of a sudden we start realizing, hey, wait a minute, that thing back there, I didn't accomplish that because of my abilities. That was the work of the Spirit of God in me. And that scene back there, hey, that was the Spirit of God and the power of God at work in my life that enabled me to deal with that or do this or walk there or get through that. You know that great big dark valley I thought I'd never get out of? We've all been through them. We look back one day and go, oh, wait a minute. I just suddenly realized I'm not in a valley anymore. I look back and realize, you know what? I got through that valley because the power of God was a work towards me. We give thought and consideration to the things that we have known in Scripture and experience in our lives, and then we begin to see and really know the power of God a work toward us. How are we going to live this Christian life? On our own strength? A thousand times no. No. We live it as Paul says, or as Paul prays, that we may know the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. Why do we need His power living, working toward us? So we can live this Christian life as godly, loving children of the living God. What is this power of God to work toward us? It's His omnipotent ability to governed by his eternal love toward us in order to accomplish whatever he desires. And how can we know? How can we really know? Number one, we pray. Number two, we soak our hearts and minds in the word of God. Number three, we seek the increased influence of the spirit of God. Number four, we do not grieve the spirit of God. And number five, we think. What's your life like, Christian? you experiencing that walk of victory? God designed you for it. Don't, don't misunderstand. I don't mean victory in the sense that you never have a problem or never have a struggle. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about victory as in victory over the sin that keeps cropping up and keeps coming back again and again and again in your life. You look on and you see these godly men and women, some in this church even, And you wonder, how do they do it? How do they walk with that simple, quiet glow of joy and faith and love? They're not doing it because they've got some magic pill. They're doing it because the power of God is at work towards them. And you know what, brother and sister? Rejoice. The power of God, that same power of God that created the heavens and the earth that enabled Mary to conceive miraculously, that raised Jesus from the dead, that raised Lazarus from the dead and made you alive in Christ, is working towards you. Know it. Live in it. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing another hymn. But before we do, we're going to close in prayer first.